All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 328, and it's actually part two of episode 326, where we started out covering the 60s. Uh, we will close with a trilogy here. There will be one more that is primarily covering Moon, Manson, and Woodstock, an old pun I used to make. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very humid good morning. So the episode that we did, 326, was quite popular, breaking down the importance of the decade called the 60s. Uh, it's a bit ironic how our lives are neatly cut into 10 little year segments, you know, as if nature would do that. But that's how we live our lives. And you can see easily as you go back through the decades, the change point from everything, the clothes, the music, just the cars, all of it uh, fit neatly into these decadal, if that's a word, dividers. And uh, as we get into this, this will be part two. We, we dropped off last time, right as we were getting up to the Beatles. Anyhow, let's do the British Invasion. The lead-up to the British invasion. In October of 1963, the first newspaper articles about the frenzy in England surrounding the Beatles appeared in national newspapers in the United States. The Beatles' November 4th Royal Variety Performance in Front of the Queen Mum is said to have sparked music industry and media interest in the band. During November, a number of major American print outlets and two network television evening programs published and broadcast stories on the phenomenon that would become known as Beatlemania. So as a whole, Beatlemania is a construct, and Jason will probably say things about it later. Um, when we first tried to record this, he very aptly said, fake it until you make it. Uh, the first mania that we're aware of or that's claimed in media is actually an Elvis thing, and you can go look that up. And what you're seeing is people are testing the waters, but the main the main point we should look at is here, really? So the Queen Mother picked this obscure band out of nowhere and decided to take an interest. You can already see that this is being primed to be a worldwide media event, and this is what's going to drive it. And the mania portion of this, I would urge people to go back and look at the footage and do things like, say, how big is the audience I'm looking at, really? Um, look at all the little pieces and parts of an audience you would expect to see if the whole world had gone crazy at the level you're being told they are. Um, and I'm sure Jason will add something here, but you've got to realize that the Beatles quit touring not very far into their career, by the way. And the excuse used is these girls are screaming so loud, our amps won't get there. And uh, Jason knows something about amps as well. Right. Now, there is some validity to that because as the Beatles' popularity grew and the places they were playing were getting larger, the PA systems and all that just weren't what they are now. So the Beatles went from using Vox amps. They were uh, sponsored by Vox. So they had the smaller AC-15s, AC-30s, then moved up to the AC-50s, and then up to the AC-100s, meaning 100 watts. They kept needing bigger and bigger amps. And most of what you see, actually, of the Beatles, especially the American stuff, they're already up to the AC-100s. So other than like giant places like Shea Stadium and stuff like that, they may indeed have had trouble hearing what was going on. Yeah, I think I think what you said the first time we sat down to do this, fake it until you make it, is a very apt description. Uh, I think it's a put up at first. Look at some of the crowds at the airport where you're telling you thousands of people are losing their mind and just screwing. It's the same as the JFK footage. When you throw out everything you've heard and all the mania to make a pun around these events and scrutinize the audiences, what you're being shown, the first thing you'll realize is that it's rare when you get a shot of many thousands of people doing anything. Typically, 
you see very few people being filmed or edited in a way to make them look like there's a lot of people. But uh, we're about to get racy here, Jason, for the early 60s. Someone wants to hold your hand. The Beatles reach the number one spot on the U.S. singles charts for the first time with the song I Want to Hold Your Hand. This is generally considered the first volley of the British invasion. On February 7th, 1964, the Beatles departed from Heathrow Airport in the UK with an estimated 4,000 fans screaming and waving as the plane took off. Upon landing at New York's John F. Kennedy Airport, another adoring crowd is said to have been waiting, estimated at around 3,000. Their first live U.S. television performance was two days later on The Ed Sullivan Show, said to have been watched by approximately 73 million viewers in over 23 million households, or 34% of the American population at the time. According to the Nielsen Rating Service, it was the largest audience that had ever been recorded for an American television program. The next morning, the Beatles received a predominantly negative critical consensus in the U.S., but this changed a day later at their first U.S. concert when Beatlemania erupted at the Washington Coliseum. Back in New York the following day, the Beatles were met with another strong reception during two shows at Carnegie Hall. The band then flew to Florida, where they appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show a second time, with numbers of around 70 million viewers, before returning to the UK on February 22nd. This short journey by four very young men opened the floodgates. So I'm not going to take the time to break down these dates. I may do others as we go in, but uh, really, Ed Sullivan was like the apex of entertainment back in the day when most of America only watched TV in the evenings, and this was a back-to-back Uh, I would point out, but think about what Jason just said. The first time they do it, it's negative. I'm guessing people were told to get in line in media or stack them with people who would get in line and they do it again. But isn't it interesting how the first volley, and we're quoting here of the British invasion, and it truly is a British invasion, landed another place that is hooked into this decade of nonsense. They landed JFK, all the threads always tying back and forth. But the British invasion is one of the most aptly named things ever. You've got to realize that it's not long before people begin to realize that all this music coming out of Britain is a rehash or, let's say, inspired by American music in the first place. And it's a bit like that for the second British invasion that never got named, which is the launch of MTV in something like 82. None of the American bands could hold up. They couldn't make videos that mattered. It was almost entirely British bands driving that bus at that point. What would you add, Jason? Yeah, it's very much true that the two biggest bands of this era, which would be the Beatles and then the Rolling Stones, were heavily inspired by 1950s rock and roll. As a matter of fact, the lines were blurred at first because the Beatles were starting to do their thing right at the end of that doo kind of um, slick back hair, leather jackets, all that kind of thing of the 50s rock and roll, the Elvis look and all that, until they started doing their own thing with the matching suits and the mop tops. Well, what's interesting, too, is I think you could still go back and find um, interviews with some of the predominantly blues, probably predominantly black acts who had put down the foundations of what we call the blues, which all the British stuff is going to be built on. Things like, I'm trying to bring one to mind. Oh, here's a good example. House of the Rising Sun by Eric Burden and the Animals was a ripoff. Um, The people behind the initial idea of that song, they, they used to be interviews of them 
unimpressed. Yeah, this guy stole our stuff and made a million dollars off us. This goes on a lot. And one of the biggest examples I would estimate, Jason, is Zeppelin. Uh, Zeppelin lifted quite a bit of music. And if I'm not mistaken, I wasn't following the news. Didn't Stairway to Heaven even come under scrutiny not too long ago? There was a bunch of suits about Zeppelin music. By the way, I think they won them all. Yeah, there used to be a video I haven't looked in years, but it may still be out on YouTube where it shows the direct lifting of Led Zeppelin from these older songs. Now, Led Zeppelin's yet another band where they freely admit that they were drawing heavily from the blues thing. They always said that they took it right from the black blues era of a few decades earlier, that they loved this stuff, the R&B music, like all that. They all admit that they did this. As a matter of fact, the Rolling Stones' early albums are full of covers of these songs. Right. So it's not like there's any secret here. But if you look on YouTube, you might still be able to find a video where they do cuts back and forth, and one of them was Stairway to Heaven, showing where they took a lot of that from. Right. You know, the story that we got before all this came to light was uh, he had Jimmy Page had a piece of music. And I think the story used to go. Robert Plant writes the words to the most played song on FM radio up to a point in something like 10 minutes. But the other part of this is certain acts actually probably truly care about what they're ripping off. People like maybe Eric Clapton's an example where they integrate these acts that are not that famous, not getting paid, and they integrate them into it. But there is a hell of a lot of theft going on early on. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way up into the modern age. Think of Pink Floyd. I think recently they lost a lawsuit for the female voice that basically makes uh, that oh-so-famous song off Dark Side of the Moon. You know which one I'm talking about, Jason. I can't think of the name of it. Is the great gig in the sky? Is that it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so the female voice, which is in the entirety of that, she got around to saying, hey, man, I got paid like $100 an hour or something less than that. Um, She got paid big. For contributing to the music, but you can see what was going on here. There was a power center that was going to emanate uh, the next cultural shock, and that was going to be rock and roll. And the idea that somehow it was counter to what the powers that be wanted is laughable as the first salvo kicks off with a performance for the Queen, and then Ed Sullivan puts them on back to back. That's a telling thing. I think Alan Parsons has always been a little annoyed about the Dark Side of the Moon thing, too, because he got paid just his session fee. And Dark Side of the Moon is, I think, if not the greatest, one of the greatest selling albums ever. And the money is just obviously not equal there. But as far as I understand it, he got paid what he got paid because that's what the going rate was. There's nothing that we're going to cover here that isn't interlinked with nonsense. The night that the Apollo thing was going on, Pink Floyd was doing a live session that they called Moonhead to make fun. And think about what we're saying here. I'm reasonably sure that Dark Side of the Moon spent the most time at the top of the charts that's ever been charted. I could be wrong, but it, it's insane how many weeks that that held up. And you got to realize how these charts work too. People may think it's because it's pot. No, that's not how the chart works. You can look it up online now. It's easy to see that it is a way for the industry to prop up things they want and knock other things down. And this is also why you get so many charts, country, Western, pop. You know, at a time there was disco, all these different charts to drive the industry. Now, as far as Moonhead goes, I believe that was a song like they did like an open jam of in their earlier live shows, because I've heard variations of it. The only recording I've ever been able to find of it is pretty crappy, almost like someone taped it off a TV speaker. Yeah, but I think just even the naming of it tells you what they what what their 
you know, their observation point was compared to the rest of the world. The rest of the world was glued to their TVs, convinced someone was about to put a boot on the moon. And if you go back and look at how things were named and what they were done, it's pretty clear that there were insiders who understood fully that this was a put up. And if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, while the BBC was showing the Apollo 11 landings, Pink Floyd was playing live, I think, in the studios while that was being shown to the British public. Yeah, I forget all that. I've looked at it years ago, but what always sticks out is they chose to name it Moonhead. And then the thing that goes just, you know, stratospheric is dark side of the moon. There's your moon thing again. And as we have pointed out, the moon is a put up. Everything you heard about the moon or space in the 60s is a put up. Some of it very provable. Other parts of it that you logically can assume it's not possible that it's not a put up. And that's kind of the way of our world because plausible deniability is built into so many things, but a moon landing, show me the plausible deniability in that. You're claiming a thing happened that we can demonstrate did not. The Beatles' first visit to the U.S. took place when the nation was still mourning the assassination of President John F. Kennedy a few months earlier. Commentators are said to suggest that for many, particularly the young, the Beatles' performances reignited the sense of excitement and possibility that momentarily faded in the wake of the assassination and helped pave the way for the revolutionary social changes to come later in the decade. Another way of saying this is fantasy replaced reality. The Beatles' hairstyle, known as the Mop Top, was considered unusually long for that time and was mocked by many adults. However, it would become an emblem of rebellion to the up-and-coming baby boomer youth culture. The group's massive popularity generated unprecedented interest in other British music, and many other UK acts would begin making their American debuts, successfully touring over the next three years in what was termed the British Invasion. The Beatles' success in the US opened the door for a successive string of British groups, with the other largest band being the Rolling Stones. Right. There's a whole story between the Beatles and the Stones, which is a complete marketing thing where one's the good boys, the Beatles and the Stones are the bad boys. And there's even open admissions that they branded them that way at the time, knowing that you couldn't have two good boy acts at the same time. But you're also going to start to see things like the culture being built up around it. Just giving a hairstyle, a name, mop top, you can you know look back and logically see what that means. But you see the unprecedented interest in other British music. If you want to know to what extent this was mainstreamed when everyone thought it was counterculture go look at how many movies uh were created with band members of so many bands it's it's unreal how many of these british rock stars were starring in this movie or that movie and you'll notice what they're doing is they're creating the culture that they want to see propagate into the world in these films but again do we need to point out the first visit took place when the nation was still mourning kennedy this is right from the Tavistock playbook. You rip the rug out from under someone, then you give them a little bit of joy or normalcy, then you do it again. And you could define the entirety of the 60s and so much of the decades that follow in exactly this manner. For anyone who wants to know what we're talking about, go back to some of our Tavistock work where it basically lays down what is openly admitted as social engineering and psychological operation tactics. On May 22nd, 1964, the graduating class of the University of Michigan listened attentively as Democratic President Lyndon Baines Johnson, riding a wave of popularity helped along by sympathy for the recently assassinated JFK, gave the invited commencement address. 
LBJ took this opportunity to enlist the student's help in realizing his goal of creating the Great Society. The Great Society was LBJ's set of domestic programs he launched in 1964 and 1965. His stated main goal was the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice. New major spending programs that addressed education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, and transportation were launched during this period. The program and its initiatives were subsequently promoted by him and fellow Democrats in Congress in the 1960s and in the following years. The Great Society in Scope and Sweep resembled the New Deal domestic agenda of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Some Great Society proposals were stalled initiatives from JFK's New Frontier. Johnson's success depended on his skills of persuasion, coupled with the Democratic landslide victory in the 1964 elections that brought in many new liberals to Congress, making the House of Representatives in 1965 the most liberal House since 1938. Anti-war Democrats complained that spending on the Vietnam War choked off the Great Society. While some of the programs have been eliminated or had their funding reduced over the years, several of them, including Medicare, Medicaid, the Older Americans Act, and federal education funding, continue to the present day. The Great Society's programs expanded under the administrations of Republican presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Well, let's, let's not mince our words here. Uh, the Great Society is maybe an earlier version of what Papa Bush says on September 11 in the 90s, whatever day that was, I, for, I mean, whatever year that was, I've forgotten, where he utters during a pres- presidential address, um, the, the one world order, the new world order, however he phrases it. This is just earlier versions of the same idea, the Great Society, lumping it all together. And this is on the tail of the New Deal. People can go back and look uh, what was actually done during these things and what's happening. It's all one big game of chess, one thing after the other. And by the way, to see supposed liberals, which this liberal and, and, and conservative meant something a lot different back in this day than it means now. It's a similar idea, but I don't think people should get confused. But in 64, they're claiming, oh, we've got the most liberal Congress since 1938. Well, I'll tell you what. You have to um, when you're going to create this kind of now how it's viewed liberal hippie society. But the funny thing is, is it goes right back to the other side. And the other side is, is told in the end of this bullet point, takes the same ideas like the uh, the uh, the great society. So the Democrats come up with it and the Republicans run with it. And this is what has always cracked me up about people stuck in the mind blue, red, red, blue mind spell. Um, Can't you see that it doesn't even matter who's who? One guy starts it, and if it's something they want, every team furthers it. This has been true in my lifetime. The idea that somehow the big events differ with a political party is almost laughable. From this point forward, we're going down. Uh, We will not be at the same levels we once were, and it's not going to change within my lifetime. On January 2nd, 1964, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is enacted. It is called a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and later sexual orientation and gender identity. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in schools and public accommodations, and employment discrimination. 
the act remains one of the most significant legislative achievements in American history. The legislation had originally been proposed by President Kennedy in June of 1963. So when you look at things like this, you've got to realize that when you single out any race, sexual preference, anything, anything in this world to give it protections like this, uh, under it all, whether it works or it doesn't or it kind of works, you're still creating the division. Go back to the idea of the Constitution. All men are created equal. Well, that, that doesn't quite cover it either, does it? It should say all lives are created equal because the men thing is gender right? It's, it's focusing on a gender. So my point here is, is what the constitution attempts to do in a single line is all that's ever needed to be done. All people get treated equally, period. Not these people get, you know, singled out for special attention in one way or the other. And this lets you know um, that the race card has never failed to give dividends to those who are going to play it. And in the same way we're doing BLM now, this is that at a different level in a different time. From the United States Naval Institute website. On 2nd August 1964, North Vietnamese patrol torpedo boats attacked the USS Maddox while the destroyer was in international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin. There is no doubting that fact. But what happened in the Gulf during the late hours of 4th August and the consequential actions taken by U.S. officials in Washington has been seemingly cloaked in confusion and mystery ever since that night. Nearly 200 documents the National Security Agency declassified and released in 2005 and 2006, however, have helped shed light on what transpired in the Gulf of Tonkin on 4th August. The papers, more than 140 of them classified top secret, include phone transcripts, oral history interviews, signals intelligence messages, and chronologies of the Tonkin events developed by Department of Defense and NSA officials, combined with recently declassified tapes of phone calls from White House officials involved with the events and previously uncovered facts about Tonkin, these documents provide compelling evidence about the subsequent decisions that led to the full commitment of U.S. armed forces to the Vietnam War. Now, that was the official write-up on that website, but in case you don't know, this is the incident where Jim Morrison's father, George S. Morrison, commanded the fleet that led to direct military involvement of the United States in Vietnam. So there's so much here that could be broke down, but what Jason just did is told you the only damn thing you need to know. All this other detail and nonsense, when you know something's been faked, what more do you need to know? And is, is anyone going to jail here? No. Are people going to lose their lives because of this fake event that leads us into Vietnam? Yeah, lots of people. But if you took the time, which I will not do here, to break down things like the word USS Maddox, which has mad right in the, in the ideas, one idea, um, even taking the numbers DD731, or for that matter, it's just occurred to me as Jason was reading this, the Gulf of Tonkin. Tonkin must have meaning packed in it. This is a big event. But uh, how does anyone not wake up to the fact that what Jason just told you is beyond the realm of coincidence? And when you get to a level of knowing, what you will see is young Master Morrison was in a band that was skewing the values and the culture of the young people in the country, having his own little, I guess we could call it a war. His father was busy faking us into Vietnam. If you wanted to break down 
some of the most important families that ever lived based on how many people were affected, I think you could single out this family and put it right near the top. It's impossible to understand how many lives were changed in some way or lives lost in terms of the Vietnam side of things. But we can easily show that it's a put up and we can show who started the put up. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, or the Southeast Asia Resolution, was enacted on August 10, 1964. It was a joint resolution that the United States Congress passed on August 7, 1964, in response to the aforementioned Gulf of Tonkin incident. It is of historic significance because it gave U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson authorization without a formal declaration of war by Congress for the use of conventional military force in Southeast Asia. The resolution authorized the president to do whatever he felt was necessary in order to assist any member or protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty. This included involving the commitment of United States armed forces. Such a critical point here. What are we saying? What we're saying is war was never declared. As Jason has pointed out in past episodes, there has been no war declared. The declaration of war since around or at World War II. So what does that actually mean? Well, you have things like the Geneva Conventions and all these things, and there's supposed to be rules on how you can kill people. As long as you have declared war, there's rules of war. So all that goes out the window. What are the rules? When, when you're not at war, when you're in a conflict of some, some kind. But what actually goes on is this is queuing up America to fail very publicly in a massive way to the point where when this ended, and I'm old enough to remember this, people will get hot under the collar when the conversation comes up, did we win or lose Vietnam? Such a point of contention. And all those people who served in the military through all this, you know, go ahead and say we lost. They're going to get mad. And whether that was by design, it was pretty clear that America had failed huge. And it was really one of the first huge fails. Well, other than JFK, someone could pop our president and we can't possibly figure out who did that. Gilligan's Island is an American sitcom created and produced by Sherwood Schwartz. It aired for three seasons on the CBS network from September 26th, 1964 to April 17th, 1967. The series followed the comic adventures of seven castaways as they attempted to survive on an island on which they had been shipwrecked. Most episodes revolved around the dissimilar castaways' conflicts and their unsuccessful attempts to escape their plight, with Gilligan frequently being responsible for the failures. Gilligan's Island ran for 98 episodes. The show received solid ratings during its original run, then grew in popularity during decades of syndication, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, when many markets ran the show in the late afternoon. The title character of Gilligan is now widely recognized as an American cultural icon. Uh, it's almost cult-like status at this point. Um, but yeah, I was live when this was going on. We watched it. But this fits the old bill that always used to be true, that new programming, words have meaning, programming came to you in the fall. So CBS launches this in September of 64. But this show has such a cultural impact. It's hard to overstate it. And when I go back now and I look at it, like, do you remember what color Gilligan's shirt was, Jason? Red with white collar. Right. Do you remember what color the Skippers was? Blue. 
<laughs> all the same old good tricks. But what it really served to do is to instill in a comedic way the normalization of the idea. Well, if a decision needs to be made, the skipper's here. That's who makes decisions. And by the way, the girls are clearly here to make sure we don't run out of coconut cream pies. What's the rich guy there for? To do any damn thing he wants anytime. And the professor, if it comes to science, you can't talk to anyone. The professor's there to cover that base. And you can see, if you look back and scrutinize it now, what's going on under the guise of basically comedy. But this was, it's weird how it ended because it seemed to be popular the whole time I can remember it. But when you look back on it now, you can see the power of television. You know, networks were weird, especially back then. They canceled things even though they were really popular. And something we'll be getting to in a few points is another very popular show that for some reason seemed to struggle on the air, or at least they seemed to think it struggled on the air, despite the fact that it was extremely popular. But we'll, we'll get there in a little bit. I assume you're alluding to Star Trek, and I don't agree that it struggled on the air. Uh, all the people that I knew um, loved it in the 80s. Uh, everyone, e even my wife, for that matter. And it was a cultural big deal. And I remember years ago looking at this, and the argument was being made, what the hell was going on here? We had a spot-on show that was doing it, and someone pulled the rug. So I guess we could argue with both Gilligan's Island and something like Star Trek that maybe what they were doing was not primarily driven by how entertaining it is. Well, that's my point. Why did they cancel it? I don't actually know. Well, because they implanted what they need to. We all know what it looks like for a spaceship to orbit a planet now, don't we? On October 1st, 1964, hundreds of students at the University of California, Berkeley, spontaneously surround a police car as it attempts to remove a political activist for engaging in political advocacy on campus. Roughly 3,000 students will join the 32-hour protest marking the beginning of Berkeley's free speech movement. You know, this one bullet point feels, when I look back now knowing what I knew, and I had a family that worked at universities as teachers, this is the tone and tenor. There are going to be a lot of protests, a lot of things getting called sit-ins, and this is going to be a big change from the prior decade, and it's contentious, and almost all the contention is between the younger generation, supposedly not jiving with the older generation, and the younger generation saying things like, we're not down with all the war that's always going on, and this sets the tone and tenor even up into the early 70s, I would say, just complete everybody at odds in terms of official societal demarcation. In other words, how do you act with authority? And what, what are you doing here? Are you a student or is there something more going on here? And you can even go back and look at the videos on this. It was so common for the universities to have uprisings that typically didn't get out of hand, but that too will make the news in Ohio State. The free speech movement was a massive, long-lasting student protest, which took place during the 1964-1965 academic year on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. The movement was informally under the central leadership of Berkeley graduate student Mario Savio. With the participation of thousands of students, the free speech movement was the first mass act of civil disobedience on an American college campus in the 1960s. Students insisted that the university administration lift the ban of on-campus political activities and acknowledge the students' right to free speech and academic freedom. The free speech movement was influenced by the new left political movement and was also related to the civil rights movement 
and the anti-Vietnam War movement. Right. So basically, the, the fire burning under all this is the idea of Vietnam. And by the way, there's a draft. And by the way, that's big news all the time. People dodging draft or burning their draft cards. If they only knew today what we, you know, if they only knew then what we know now. But, you know, I suspect when I look back on this, and by the way, I had a, a father that was working at a university during this time, that what actually happened was organic. And I think it got co-opted. I think the drugging of everyone became a big part. And then I think the, the infiltration of certain personalities like Timothy Leary is part of the response of the people who'd like to control everything in our world. But at the base of it, I think all these so-called boomers, baby boomers, not a term I care, but everyone knows who I'm talking about. They really did want to say, we don't do war and and peace and love and all this stuff. It's just that it got co-opted and then it got steered as if it was a four-wheeled vehicle, easily just pushed this way or that. I think this is a huge thing. Listening to Dave McGowan talk about how he had interviewed people from the era and all that, it seems that this really was an organic thing that started And then the powers that be were like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to have you go against our war machine. And that's when they injected all the weirdos to try and co-op these free speech movements, anti-war movements, all of that. Because these were just the children of your normal average Americans who seemed to have some brains that worked. And they were like, no, we don't want to be throwing away resources and people's lives and destroying and all that sort of thing over in a country on the other side of the world. Right. What I've always wrestled with here, Jason, is did the powers that be see this coming or did it happen and did they respond? In some ways, it feels like it started happening and they realized it was going to be an issue and they broke out the big guns. Um, they're going to drug the living bejesus. They're going to change culture to a point where being whacked out on LSD is commonplace for some period of time. But not only that, the people that are the leaders in culture, like Beatles, are going to go out and say, yeah, it's cool to be psychedelic. It's cool to be whacked out of your mind. As a matter of fact, there were things running on TV not too long ago where I forget the movie star, but he was a, you know, a young man when all this was going on and he commiserated. Yeah, we were doing everything right. I just wish we would have known more about drug abuse. Um, by the time you get into the early sixties, all these people who were leading this kind of movement of we get high all the time and music is all that matters. They're all commiserating saying we shouldn't have done the drugs. Well, where'd the drugs come from? Well, go look at where the drugs came from. A lot of that LSD and some of the really scary things you can get high on that are going to have long-term effects, first of all, they're not made the same way. There's all kinds of different ways. You don't really know what you're taking. They're going to come right out of the universities and labs like that. And it's clearly intended to do what it's tended to do. You can even go look up the supposed tests of, I forget who it is, the CIA or somebody like that, testing LSD so they claim, up to a point where it's been in use for a long time, and then they finally outlaw it. It's it's a crazy thing. They took out the Howitzers to knock down this movement, and they co-opted the people in the music industry to say and do the things they needed said and done so that they would be worshipped, and then people would do it. And then they made sure there was plenty of drugs to go around. And the real kickoff, in my mind, where the public side of this comes out is the Monterey Pop Festival. Right. Now, from what I've seen, drugs weren't even part of the free speech movement at first. That's exactly what we've been saying, the co-opting, the mixing of all these things. And I think the people who are just part of the free speech and the anti-war movement were like, who are these long-haired, dirty weirdos 
who are drugged out of their minds, who are now trying to become a part of the movement. I think that's what happened. Well, part of it is at first um, blowing some grass, you know, pretty benign thing, smoking a little joint. And by the way, the weed at this time is one one thousandth the strength of the weed people get today. That's probably an overstatement on my part, but it's not even in the same building. The strength and power of weed today is off the charts. Back then, for people who know anything about pot, it was common to smoke homegrown, which was basically the sun leaves, not even the bud. And it was just a lot different. So that's what they were doing. And it was almost like it was intentionally used to get culture to accept that. And then sky became the limit. Uh, all these drugs, just every pill you can imagine. And by the way, the Grateful Dead is going to be the epicenter of that for its entire career. The, the so-called wait for it, Grateful Dead or wait for it, deadheads. Here's a story about my younger life. I had a car and a friend of mine gave me these stickers to put on it. And I didn't, I never really enjoyed the Grateful Dead. But stickers were cool. So I put these stickers on my car. And I can't tell you how many times I'd have been at a gas station or something and someone would come up to me saying, hey, man, you got some drugs? You got some this, that other thing for sale? And I kept thinking, man, do I do I look like I'm a drug dealer or something? And then one day, one of my friends laughed at me and he said, what do you expect? Look at the stickers on your windshield. And then it all dawned on me. Oh, there's the subculture sign. Come ask me for drugs. And it was all Grateful Dead stuff. And that's when I realized the guy who gave me the stickers, um, who actually did sell drugs, must have been having a joke on me. But you can see how the powerful, culturally important bands further every little piece of this exercise. On November 3rd, 1964, Democratic incumbent is elected president of the United States. He defeats his opponent, Republican Barry Goldwater, by the largest margin in American history. Johnson wins 61% of the popular vote and 486 of 538 electoral college votes. You know, you fake kill a president, there's a lot of things you're going to be able to do on the back of it. And here's one of them. But after the fact, the so-called conservative side of the aisle uh, worships what Goldwater for decades and decades worships what that, the kind of conservatism they perceived Goldwater was offering. But again, it required a very liberally minded everything to go these ways. And this shows you the power of the red blue mind spell. Um, people are not liberal or conservative. A person that thinks with their thoughts is whatever they think is best at the time. And it doesn't fit into a box. When you become liberal or conservative, you jam your own self in a box saying, well, I don't do this because liberals don't do this. And by the way, I now identify with a freaking color. I've branded myself with a freaking color, which will be used endlessly, even on Gilligan's Island, by the way. Um, but the point here is, is the, the deck was stacked. And it was pretty clear how it was going to go when you look at it in reverse. The uh, Bane of America, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and go look at some of the things that are written. I think it's James Shelby Downard has a few things to say about that camp. The Warlocks. They were a mid-1960s rock band that were formed in Palo Alto at the end of 1964 when Jerry Garcia, Ron Pigpen McKernan, and Bob Weir who were the original members of Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, decided to plug in at the urging of Ron McKernan. They added a rhythm section with Dana Morgan Jr. on bass and Bill Kreutzmann on drums. Their first performance was in May of 1965 at Magoo's Pizza in Menlo Park. After a handful of performances, Phil Lesh replaced Dana Morgan. More on The Warlocks to come. 
you know, <laughs> everyone can look up what the word warlock means. They were going to live up to that name. The Grateful Dead it can never be understated what a massive presence they have in the 60s counterculture. And it goes well beyond the 60s. As most people who follow know, I was a roadie for most of the 90s. And there was a band that was almost viewed by the roadies as a Grateful Dead replacement called Fish. Here's a story about San Diego on uh, actual number of shows that I did there as a roadie. In San Diego, there was a time when if you went to the sports arena or somewhere, everyone was smoking pot, it was thick in the air, and none of the authorities were going to try to do anything about it. Well, by the time the 90s had come around, that had all reversed. If you wanted to risk flaring up a joint at one of these events, you might get popped. Well, I was coming into work to set up fish one day, and as I came down the Embarcadero in downtown San Diego, I could smell so much weed in the air, and I thought, what's going on? And pretty soon, I'm going down the walkway up to where you present your backstage pass because you're working, and everybody is openly smoking weed in a time where that's not cool anymore. But what topped it off was the San Diego PD and Harbor PD were just walking down the street. And the reason was, is there was just too many people doing it. And this is emblematic of what the Grateful Dead were. The Grateful Dead went on for decades, and primarily... Maybe you could lay the epicenter of psychedelic tie-dyed t-shirts at a band like this. Certainly a big, cultural, important part of that psychedelic idea. But anyone who's been to a Dead concert knows that the vast majority of people there are in love with the band. Many will follow them wherever they go. And in that audience, it is a full-on party. And guess what? The authorities aren't doing anything to try to stop it. That's my perception of the Grateful Dead. And I guess we should mention, Jason... Uh, we can now easily demonstrate, and people have beat us to the punch to document this, they were on the FBI payroll. They were always part of the controlling concerns. Oh yes, that's coming. But on March 2nd, 1965, Operation Rolling Thunder begins. President Johnson approves Rolling Thunder in February, believing that a program of limited bombing in North Vietnam will deter support for the Viet Cong. Rolling Thunder continues for three years and eight months, involving 305,380 raids and 634,000 tons of bombs. Results include 818 pilots killed and hundreds more captured, 182,000 civilians killed in North Vietnam. Also in March, the United States Marines land on beaches near Da Nang, South Vietnam, as the first American combat troops to enter Vietnam. Now think about the mental effects of what Jason just read. This Vietnam is such a turn point where all these young people in the universities are saying, we're not going to fight your damn war and quit killing everybody. And it's being turned into a drugged out sideshow kind of hippie thing. All these things are going to go on to deflect from those young people saying what was correct. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, the older people are turning into the news, staring at this because there's embedded media everywhere in horror. And what it serves to do is almost like if I look at it now, put the mindset, well, that's horrible, but thank God it's not happening to me and it's happening to them. That is such a critical thing to consider because for a world to ever get back to level, you can't 
operate in that way. If you see someone getting trashed, you should be saying, oh my God, that's a human being. Quit trashing them. Not be like, well, I'm just glad it's not at my doorstep. And this is really a big shift in the way I think America thinks about itself. It's been so destabilized. Everyone is so freaking miserable and it's going up and down and violence and MLK and JFK and just one thing after another. Pretty soon Manson and then, you know, the moonshot. We're landing on the moon. Just everybody is discombobulated, but the whole mindset has changed to kind of throw out the window. What is actually correct here? It becomes something entirely different. And we become to become more self-centered because everyone just wants to find level. Even can I just live my damn life with a modicum of respect and, you know, equal, equal days, you know, not this bumpy ride I'm constantly on. And the self-centered nature of that gets to a point where you can turn on the news every night and watch this horrible, horrible thing and then walk away saying, well, I'm just glad it's not happening to me. And that becomes the entirety of the response. But don't, don't get me wrong. The young people for a good period here stood up saying, we're not doing this. The drugs will catch up with that movement. March 24th, 1965. The first anti-war teach-in is conducted at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. 200 faculty members participate by holding special anti-war seminars. Regular classes were canceled, and rallies and speeches dominated for 12 hours. On March 26th, there was a similar teach-in at Columbia University in New York City. This form of protest would start spreading to many colleges and universities. Why is it the universities? Well... Jason and I have covered this in the Tavistock episodes and other things. Jason, do you recall the list that actually well-researched claim, which I accept, by the way, that what was it? Do you remember by the time the, it was either the end of World War II or the early 50s, there was a huge number of top-level universities that had been co-opted by the CIA as tools? Do you remember that? Yeah, they were infiltrating and getting people in place, basically, as staff. Right. So here it is. And here, here's the rub. Think about to go to college is not then what it is now. Almost no one can. They want you to go to some ridiculous online college now, which isn't even in the same freaking universe as the education that was going on back here that most, a lot of people, let's just say a lot of people could afford, did kind of depend what state you were on. California had very affordable schooling up into my young 20s, I think is when it really started to change. But what's going on here is grandma and grandpa, or maybe mom and dad are paying for junior or Missy to go get their university education. And the university's making LSD and the university's doing whatever in the hell because it's already been co-opted. That's why these stories matter. Well, why is it New York College and you know, University of Michigan? Why are these things happening here and why are they on the news? This is the infiltration of the counterculture. And what it's going to do is they're not going into the hippie realm. At least that's not what's making the news. They're getting the education, educated portion of the society. And they're going to pull from that direction. In the summer of 1965, support for the conflict in Vietnam continued to erode as President Johnson's advisors recommended sending hundreds of thousands of servicemen over the course of at least five years to win the Vietnam conflict. Troop buildup grew steadily, and on July 28th, President Johnson ordered the number of ground forces to increase to 125,000 and doubled the number drafted into the military from 17,000 a month to 35,000. Everybody's got skin in the game. You got a kid, he can be drafted. 
this is what's going on. And I don't even think it was that important that the draft actually occurred. I think the psychological effect of what's going on trumps everything else. But here it is, us and them. Well, it doesn't matter what's right or what's happening. None of that matters. All that matters is we got to put more guys over there so America can win. And all these horror stories coming on is just totally warping the perception of everybody watching. And this is going to be a big deal because as things like this idea are being thrown out into the public sphere, the on-air worldwide fail of America is going to follow. You know, there was something I looked up that I was very curious about. If this was such a big deal and they were trying to decapitate the North Vietnamese capability, well, why not just do what ended World War II? Why not use, well, it wasn't an atom bomb anymore in the 60s. It was hydrogen bombs. One hydrogen bomb (laughs) and that would be the end of it. And they'd be like, okay, you're going to do anything else? Nope, we surrender. We're not going to do anything else. But that didn't happen, did it? Well, I suspect that's probably wrapped up in the strategy of not declaring war, right? Um, Probably something like that. But if you want to take a macro view, most people are unaware that it's our State Department that ensured China would become communist. You can look up the research. It is well documented that the Communist Party had had its butt kicked and the new guy in the door I don't, I'm going to get the words, the the names wrong because I confuse them. It's not Dong Chaoping. I think it's Chiang Kai-shek. I don't know. I'm guessing. And I don't want to mess this up. Anyhow, the concern on top is basically saying, United States, come to the table with us. We won. Communism is out. And the State Department goes in and says, no, they're not. Put them at the table. And the other side says, we beat them. Why do we need to come to the table? And the, the State Department said, we're not asking. And so directly from what goes on there, communism doesn't lose its foothold and comes back to be the red enemy they need till the end of time. And the reason I mention this is what's backing the whole idea of Vietnam War. Well, it's those red Chinese, right? That's what's behind North Vietnam and that cultural icon of a figure. What's his name? Ho Chi Minh. Um, They name a whole trail after him where all the war is supposedly moving through the country. Uncle Ho, unreal. Well, interestingly enough, I did find something that was supposedly proposed and it was called Operation Fracture Jaw, which was a top-secret U.S. military contingency plan in which General William C. Westmoreland sought to ensure that nuclear weapons would be available for use in the Vietnam War. As the story goes, in 1968, when Johnson found out about it, he uh, wasn't too happy about it, and that was the end of that. Well, first of all, nuclear weapons have to exist as described, I would point out, but I, I get the drift of what you're saying. Um, it's ironic they're going to name it Broken Jar or whatever you just said. But Wes Moreland was, you know, he was the guy on the stage that people love to hate. Uh, unless you were all about war, then you love to love them. Um, this is, you know, go look at a movie like Apocalypse Now and you're getting echoes of the perception of what was being come into the news at the time. But yeah, you know, it's a good question, Jason. If we can take on a world war and come out on top, how come we can't deal with little things like Cuba or Vietnam or these? But what's ironic about that is Vietnam had been on the chess table for a long time. Go look at the French conflicts in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, by the time we get there, French culture is all over Vietnam. It's unreal what the kind of European powers that be have used certain parts of the world for. Well, what I'm getting to in a very snarky way is that one hydrogen bomb, if they exist as described, would have solved the whole thing. There's no way in hell North Vietnam would have wanted to continue once that first bomb was dropped. 
Well, I want to say that if, if the news idea that that actually happened went out, that people would have lost their damn minds. I don't think I can because there was a term called carpet bombing where every, you know, every so often on the news, they'd add up the hundreds of tons of bombs that had supposedly been dropped. And not only that, things like, well, we couldn't see our enemy, which his name was Charlie, by the way, because Charlie don't surf. I'm making a joke. So what did they have to do to the jungle? They had to defoliate it, um, the, the Agent Orange story and all these other things. The, the level of horror of what's being pushed out into the media and then normalized in the minds of everyone. Can you imagine if someone today went in to defoliate a forest? Just the, you know, the people who care about wildlife would lose their damn lunch. But what's being pushed out on the news here, Jason, I don't if they would have claimed they dropped a nuke, I don't think it would have been any worse than what they were already being told. I'm speculating, but I seriously think that the psychological aspect of dropping one atomic bomb at this point in time would have been far more effective than all the nonsense that they did that cost so many lives and so much infrastructure on both sides. I think one bomb, if they were real, which of course we have a lot of doubt as to that, I think it would have changed everything. But that's just my opinion. I don't have any doubt. Um, they don't exist as they're described. And you can prove that. And, you know, the very places they claim to have nuked prove it for you, like Hiroshima. Uh, anyone who wants to go back and scrutinize the footage, you'll see that the majority of it's a Hollywood special. And you will also see that if you blow up a conventional explosion, you will get a mushroom cloud. Most people think that you only get a mushroom cloud when there's a nuke. It's all just nonsense. But um, to me, when I look back on it, and we can't really probably ever know because I don't care to waste my life to scrutinize um, the particulars is that it almost feels to me like this was made to fail and uh, it was going to be a black eye that wasn't going to heal anytime soon. All right. That is our one of episode 328, which is actually the second part of episode 326. And to give you a full mouthful, there will be one more that doesn't have a number that will center in on Moon Manson and Woodstock. The 60s is is a decade that is the major turning point that brings us to now, in my view. Everything changes in this decade. And then as each decade goes by, we roll closer and closer to that fateful September 11 in the 90s when Papa Bush has the nuggets to talk about the one world order all the way up to 2001. And that's 20 years later. And 20 years after that, we do Covidius Minimus. Jason, anything you want to add in before I wrap up and get ready for hour two? So as I was writing this, it occurred to me that there's no way we could do this in one episode. Then I realized it couldn't even be done in two. So I broke it into three because you really do have to break it down with these details to see just how much was done on a year by year basis. So even just trying to put it all into two episodes wasn't working for me because I was like, oh, it's just too much. And I think it's worth expanding 67, 8, 9, and then the aftermath, of course, in 1970 forward of uh, the Moon Manson Woodstock thing that you've pushed so much that is absolutely spot on. Well, you know, every time we do this, Jason, you'll see the comments. How, how could you have forgot this? Or why didn't you cover that? Well, think about what Jason just told you. That's the problem. It's too much. I could make a full two hour show on almost any one particular point of, of these things if we wanted to get into the nitty gritty. But the overview is what's needed here. Because prior to this time, adults' minds were 
let's say, predominantly in the mix, not so foolable as we are today. Our minds had not been shifted and normalized and taught to accept things that are unacceptable. And this is where it comes to be. And as I've said so many times, the, the line in the sand is 112263. There it is going operational. And for the entirety of my life and just about to the month for the entirety of my life, it's going to be one thing after another that leads up to 2020. It's, it's a hell of a thing, but I'm going to wrap up here. Hour one of 328. Join us at crow777radio.com for part two. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I would like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era because it is important to get your mind in a place where it is not so easily foolable or programmable. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Oh.